So, um, uh, first of all, you know, I, the first service, I said, this pulpit is an amazing, like, industrial-sized thing. This is, my wife loves Fixer Upper, and, and this is the kind of thing, yeah, woo, all the girls, are, <laughs> and all the guys, you know, kind of roll their eyes, because I, only Chip could make something like this, you know. <laughs> I have no mechanical ability. My grandkids know it. They're all, my grandkids are all kind of sitting up there. My wife is up there, and uh, my idea of the yellow I mean, I have a toolbox of the yellow pages, so I, you know, yeah, you would not, not want me to even stand in front of something that I would make. So we're going to do things a little differently than you normally have done at Crossroads. We're going to have a Q&A at the end, because normally, my theory is that most people, when they hear a teaching, are one or two questions away from connecting the dots to say, oh, I get that. When I speak, most people are 30 or 40 questions away from, uh, uh, from <laughs> connecting the dots. So that's why I wrote a book called The 10-Second Rule to kind of give you the rest of the answer. So I'm not here to hawk books. Uh, uh, fortunately, I don't need to, uh, to write to make a living. And uh, my royalty checks I can cash on the city bus. So, um, uh, uh, but it may be helpful for you. And so I'll be quoting from the book occasionally. So this is the book, The 10-Second Rule. And to, to better understand and kind of set up what I'm going to talk to you about the last two-thirds of this morning, um, I want to read from my book uh, the opening two paragraphs. And uh, the introduction is entitled, My Story and Perhaps Yours as Well. And so this may be your story. I have no idea what your uh, spiritual journey has been. So I wrote this. Up until age 31, I was your standard-issue Christian, the kind Christian schools and churches in our conservative little town, Grand Rapids, uh, pounded out year after year like spiritual Model Ts, mostly in one color, beige. <laughs> we were covenant children, born and baptized in the church, so we figured we came, came with a cradle-to-grave salvational warranty. We had our get-out-of-hell-free card. We were in. And in the mid-'60s, every high school senior in my church was expected to make public profession of faith unless they were an atheist or Democrat, and I was neither one. But I had questions. And here's why I had questions. I knew by the time I was in high school, probably middle school, what my God was. It wasn't a who, it was a what. That my God was success. And I didn't get that from my parents. My parents were simple people. My father was a small-time home builder in Grand Rapids here. My mother was a stay-at-home mother. Um, uh, they were wonderful people. In fact, I tell people the only gripe I have with my parents is I can't blame my dysfunctions on them. Uh, they're, they're just uh, amazing people. And, uh, but when I was 10 years old, my father uh, went bankrupt uh, in the recession of 1957-58. And so that changed the dynamics of our family. My dad had to give up home building and went to work for my grandfather in, in a small machine shop that my grandfather had started. And, uh, and my mother became a clean lady for the Zondervan family. We also went to LaGrave Church, which at the time was probably the wealthiest church in Grand Rapids, only because the DeVosses and Bananals were there. And they had just gotten started, and they were already making serious money. And so intuitively, what I've been thinking about it I recognized that if I wanted to have freedom to do what I wanted, which is what I wanted, I needed to have money. 
And so I began to pursue that. And when I was in middle school, I, I shoveled snow during the winter, cut grass during the summer, sold um, greeting cards, over-the-door hangers, rubber scrubbers. You know, uh, when, by the time I hit ninth grade, I th thought I could sell brass knuckles to Gandhi. You know, I was just a salesperson, kind of, you know, joined uh, Boy Scouts when I was 12, and when a few years became an Eagle Scout. And so I just Mr. Overachiever in every sinful way I possibly could be. This was all about me and not about God or anybody else. Met my wife, Susan, um, sitting over there uh, in middle school. We started dating in high school. We've been married for 50 years. Yes, we are that old. She's the real hero for keeping this thing together for 50 years. <laughs> and then we have grandkids sitting over here and some son-in-laws, but they're just breeders, uh, son-in-laws. Uh, we've <laughs> So anyway, when I was maybe I was 15, I was in middle school, I mean, in 10th grade, um, my dad had an opportunity to buy the small business for my grandfather. I think we had eight employees at the time. We called it a shop, and we called it a shop up until, you know, for as long as I can remember. I would go to the shop. And uh, so my mother became uh, my father's secretary, and we... And as a family, we just kind of built the business together. I mean, we just, I just did the manual stuff, uh, but my, my father did the business side of it. I worked there during, uh, and we made parts for office furniture. So we made these screws that made office chairs go up and down. In the olden days, before gas cylinders, you had to get underneath your chair and actually turn the nut, and we made the nut, we made the screw. But that business, a small shop, would not get me where I wanted to go. And so I said to my dad, we need to do something more than selling these screws for 60 cents a piece. There's a mechanism that goes on top that actually makes the chairs tilt. That's where the money is. Those are 7 or $8 a piece. And he said, well, that's fine, but we don't have that product. So um, being a greedy um, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. When I was a, a senior in, in, at Calvin College, I designed and patented a tilt mechanism that eventually became the largest selling uh, mechanism in North America. It's not, it was no big deal. It's not like I designed the Jarvik heart valve or the iPhone or something. This was, you know, this was, this was nothing. But it, it kind of catapulted us into success. My father, unfortunately, never saw the product of that, of that success. He found out he had cancer when I was a senior and died a few years later. So I took over the business at that point and grew it until for the next 10 years. And all the time, I'm raising a family. Susan and I got married when we were in college. We had three kids at the time. We now have six. We have 20 grandchildren. Can you believe that? And a few of them are here this morning. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's what I think sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, um, and so I, we, I, we, we went to church twice on Sunday. We sent our kids to Christian school. I taught Sunday school. My wife taught Sunday school. I was on the evangelism committee. I mean, I bought the whole party line spiritually. I did everything that Christians were supposed to do, I thought. All the while, just building the business, successful, successful, successful. So by the time I'm 30, we have a summer home in Lake Michigan. We have 150 employees. Got a little Mercedes convertible in the garage. And we were living large. And life didn't get any better than that. And then a few days before uh, my uh, 
31st birthday, a doctor walked to my hospital room and he said, Clara, you have lymphoma cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer, and you have roughly five to nine years to live. And I thought to myself, I don't know if it was immediately or within a couple of days, what are they going to put in my epitaph? He'd made 13.2% on sales. I mean, who, who cares, really? <clears throat> well, I cared a lot, but at that point, you get news like that, you start thinking things a little differently. There were people in my church that I've always noticed who were turned on to Jesus in a way that I was not. I mean, they were the ones that carried, you know, zippered Bibles and always praising the Lord and hugging you and, you know, it was kind of, that was not my thing. I mean, I'm a country club kind of guy, you know, I'm a man, you know, I'd almost rather be lost than not be cool, and that was not cool. But I thought, you know what, the more I thought about it, maybe they have something I don't know. Is that actually the normal Christian life? That's what it should be. But I'm too busy trying to be cool and trying to be a cultural Christian and have my foot in two different camps at the same time. So I went to a pastor friend of mine. I said, what do they have that I don't have? He said, well, I think they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How does that happen? I mean, I know he's alive to me in heaven someplace on a galaxy far, far away, but how do I actually have a relationship? He says, well, what did you, how did you learn to have a relationship with your wife? And I said, well, she looked good in school one day, and, you know, we got to talking, and, and I asked her out on a date, and the more we talked, I fell in love with her. And he said, well, how much time do you spend talking to God every day? I'm thinking, should I lie to a pastor? No, I better not. This is an important thing. He said, I said, well, you know, I, I, we pray before we eat three times a day, and I'll pray if, if I have a big business deal or, you know, we've got a family who's member who's sick or something. My wife and I will pray together. And I go to church twice on Sunday, twice, you know. <laughs> and he said, well, that's interesting. He said, do you actually think you'd fall in love with your wife if you talked to her for maybe 30 seconds three times a day and went and heard a lecture about her on Sunday? Obviously, I wouldn't. So he said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I'd like you to read the book of Luke over the next 30 days. Read a chapter a day. And before you read it, I'd like you to pray this prayer. God, teach me everything you want me to know and give me the courage to actually live it. So I said, all right, I'll give that a shot. It wasn't really, I don't know, 10 days or two weeks into it. I didn't keep track of it, but I came to this conclusion. The kind of person that Jesus described as one of his followers bore no relationship to me whatsoever. But I didn't know if I actually wanted to surrender my life to Jesus. I mean, what was he going to ask of me? Do I, do I need to, you know, buy a zippered Bible and sit around in church basements and, you know, sing Kumbaya and praise the Lord kind of stuff? You know, do I have to sell my Mercedes and go off to Nigeria and be a missionary? You know, I, I mean, I was literally the proverbial rich young ruler who spent six months sniffing around the trap. What was this going to cost me and was I willing to pay it? I desperately wanted plan B a less intrusive, less costly way of following Jesus other than actually following Jesus. And I couldn't find it. So one morning I got up. I was up most of the night because I knew this about God. When you make a vow to God, he takes it very seriously. What I was about to do is pledge my highest allegiance 
to Jesus. And, uh, and so I took it very seriously, and I, I cried out to him. I said, you know what? I'm lost. I don't care how much I know about the Bible. I don't care how much I'm giving away. I don't care. I know that I'm lost and that I need you, and I need you to transform me inside out. Um, I need you to change my life, to come in and take control of my life. I didn't always have all the verbiage. I mean, I, you know, it was, this was not something that I knew many people who did. I just knew I had to do business of God myself. So uh, uh, that radically transformed <clears throat> my life. I, um, for the next three years, I just studied the Bible like mad. I started meeting with people and sharing to, with them what I knew. I'm sure there are some people that thought I just lost my mind. Uh, but what I actually was doing is I was losing my fear of being bold for, for Christ. And so, yeah, I made a ton of mistakes. I'm sure I turned some people off. But God used that time to just transform me. And uh, about three years into the journey, my management team came to me and said, hey, Claire, we're, we're growing like mad. We're now up to 175 people, a 100,000-square-foot plant. I mean, we were, we were cooking. And I didn't spend that much time there, so that was the miracle. I, always, I thought the whole business depended on me, and the more I did these kinds of things, it didn't. But I did know this, that, that um, the business for me was my umbilical cord, and um, I needed to cut that cord. Like Cortez, when he came to the New World, he burned all of the ships and just sent one back and said, come back and get me in a year. I need to burn my bridges behind me. So I put the company up for sale in 1984. I was 35 years old. Um, and uh, a company from the New York Stock Exchange bought it, a Fortune 500 company, and I haven't had steady work since. So um, uh, I tell people I'm still looking for something mid-six figures and no heavy lifting, but I haven't found that. <laughs> but in the meantime, God has given me through that the economic freedom to study the Bible, to understand more and more what it actually means to follow Jesus. I'm a practical, entrepreneurial kind of guy. So while I love theology, and you went, you went to Princeton, and you know, preaching in front of a Princeton grad is like going to the Spiritual Olympics and drawing the Bulgarian judge, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he's going to hear theology light here this morning, but I like to know how does it actually work? When Jesus says this, we, most of us will read something like, okay, love your enemies. Yeah, I agree with that. How does that actually work? Who are my enemies? How do I treat them? What happens if they don't want me to forgive them? You know, so I'm, I'm always thinking like that. So one thing led to another that, that uh, um, now I'm going to kind of get to the heart of what I wanted to say, uh, the balance of the time. So there's a question I've been asking people for probably 20 of the last 35 years. Would the people who know you best consider you a Christian or a serious follower of Jesus? People always want me to answer, well, what do you mean by that? I say, yeah, I think you intuitively know that. So that, let's not get into being hung up by the legalistic definition of that. In the first few centuries of the church, all Christians were followers of Jesus. You had to pay such a high price to follow Jesus that, that there were no lukewarm Christians. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I guess the church of Laodicea became lukewarm. But, but in general, people had to pay for, to be followed Jesus with their life, 
They lost their jobs. Their families alienated. They had to pay such a high price. Those terms are synonymous. So while today all followers of Jesus are Christians, not all Christians are followers of Jesus. That should be obvious. Well, um, uh, in the book of Luke, Jesus said this, any one of you who wishes to be my disciple, and this is one of the key verses I'd like you to remember today, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up the cross daily, and follow me. So what does that mean to take up the cross daily? When I gave my life to Christ, I gave my life to Christ, but I didn't really think about what that meant daily. So let's get into that a minute. So what does it actually mean to do that? And so 15 years ago, 18 years ago, I met a guy named Bill Job. He was a pastor from Kentucky who got burned out in pastorate, so he went to China and started a little small factory making, like, frames for Pottery Barn. And, and he came back and was talking one day, and, uh, and I was just stunned with the spiritual insights that this guy had. And so afterwards, I went up to him and I said, listen, I've been struggling with a definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, so give me a definition. He said, I can't define it, but I know the secret of becoming one and staying one the rest of your life. I said, all right, what's that? He said, the 10-second rule. Obey the 10-second rule. What is that? Just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do and do it quickly before you change your mind. So it's up here can't quite read this scripture passage, John 14, 15. Jesus made this really clear. If you love me, you will obey me. If you don't obey Jesus, the inverse of that is true. You don't actually love Jesus. It's tough to exegete your way around that passage. If you love me, you will obey me. Maybe you can turn that off only because it's shooting in my eyes. But So remember this. Just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do. Well, I immediately had two reactions when I heard this. First one was, how do I know what Jesus actually wants me to do? I mean, with, with any kind of level of certainty to actually act on it. I don't know that. The second one is it's kind of cheesy. It's kind of like these mottos that you can get on coffee cups at Baker Bookhouse, you know, and, you know or bumper sticker kinds of stuff. And I, you know, I thought, yeah, this is kind of cheesy. But as I begin to think about it, what does following Jesus mean? If it doesn't mean just doing the next thing, we're reasonably certain. Now people go, well, how do you know you're reasonably certain? You know what? The search for certainty is the enemy of obedience. Now think about that for a minute. I don't have any, I don't have to search for certainty when I'm about to sin. (laughs) You know, no, I don't need a second opinion on that at all. I just, you know, I just do it. But somehow, when it comes to obedience, I need to have, you know, well, I'm not really sure. I'm really not sure, so I don't. I'll tell you where that leads in just a few minutes. So I think here's the problem. Nobody wakes up one morning and decides, I think I'm going to be a lukewarm Christian. I think what happens is that most of us had an experience in our life, let's say Young Life Camp or a retreat or Camp Winnemunca someplace or, uh, you know, a men's gathering or a women's gathering where we got serious about God. We had an encounter with a living God. Holy Spirit came in us. We're truly born again. Maybe for months or years we were excited, and we've lost that first love. I know what that feels like, because I've, I've done that, even in this 35-year period of time. 
that have become so familiar with God that we tend to be like this old couple at Russ's who just are staring at each other across the table. We're still committed to each other, but we've, I've lost that fire. And so I thought, what does it take to get that fire you know, back again? So I think what happens is that most of us just simply substitute religious activities. We come to church at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock at Crossroads. We sign up to, to lead in children's worship or for the nursery. We go to Bible study on Tuesdays. It's just a ticket for a user-friendly religion because that gives 95% of our life essentially to us, and we can assuage our guilt. Jesus did not die for that kind of life, for us to live that kind of life. That's the religious life that needs to be repented from, not to be lived out. Now, all those things are good. Don't get me wrong. We'd empty the pews if we did, and, and, and Ken wouldn't get paid. So uh, uh, you, you need to get back here. But I think what happens is that most of us then become like most other Christians we know rather than actually being like Jesus. I mean, think about this for a minute. You could be singing in church, I surrender all. I don't think there's anyone here who actually intends to surrender all. And you wonder what Jesus himself thinks when we're singing our hearts out with gusto. So when I heard about the rule, I thought, you know what, even though I have no intention of surrendering all, the rule is a way to begin surrendering more. So let's talk about how that actually works uh, in real life to just kind of get out of the spiritual gerbil cage that most of us find ourselves in from time to time. You know, Jesus' commands are pretty straightforward most of the time, but it's the excuses we managed to come up with not to obey that's at the heart of it. The issue in writing the 10-second rule book was my way of answering some of those questions. So I'll try to answer some of them this morning. Let's talk about how this works in real life. You're driving down the road, and you see a car broken down on the right side of the road, and most of us have had the experience of having this impulse, I really ought to stop. Almost immediately, we have a second impulse, a second voice. Not an audible voice, but this thought, you don't need to do that. They probably have a cell phone. They probably have insurance. They're probably with somebody who knows how to fix a tire. You kind of have this dueling voices in your head. And by the time this debate is over, that car's in the rearview mirror, and you've moved on, and you don't think anything of that. I don't think anything of it. Or, or let's just say that you're about to send an email or a text in anger to a, 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 a friend, uh, a was a friend anyway, uh, to a family member, to a coworker or something, and you, you put it together in anger, and all of a sudden you have this sense, probably from the Holy Spirit, don't send this. And immediately there's another voice. No, they've been doing this for years to you and other people. You have a right. You need to tell them what you think. You need to solve this problem, and you push send. Or maybe you've had an impulse to, to talk to Jesus, uh, uh, talk to a coworker about Jesus, and and... You just get the strong impression, now is the time. And immediately you think, you start counting the cost. This is going to be a problem. It make it awkward at work if they don't say something. You know, I mean, if, if they don't respond properly, you know, it's a good friendship. Maybe it's not time. Maybe I'll take them to church. You start having a case of the butt gods. So most, have had, most of us have a case of the butt gods for a long, long time. You know, butt God, sure you didn't mean this. So why is it? that in these dueling voices that we give in to the dark voice so often. 
I have a theory. I, 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 you know, I, again, I try to figure out why, why do I act certain ways, and I figure other people have the same problem I do. Because all of us know intuitively that obedience is going to cost us something. Time, money, inconvenience, embarrassment, some pleasure denied. And if we're disobedient, we can save ourselves all of that. Disobedience generally in the short run costs us nothing. If I don't stop for that car, it hasn't cost me that. I don't have to get out and get my hands dirty. It's not going to cost me money. I'm not going to be late for my meetings. Disobedience rarely costs me anything. I came to the conclusion that part of the problem was it was costing me something because I was training myself to be disobedient. We reward for ourselves. We do the things that give us pleasure or keep us from pain. So I was actually training myself to be disobedient. So I saw the rule as the possible to turn the corner on this because think about this for a minute. Almost everything Jesus ever taught was counterintuitive. Love your enemies. Forgive 70 times 7. Uh, you know, uh, give to anyone ask for you. You could just read this and, you, and we read it and we go, well, that's interesting, but that certainly can't. You can't actually do that in real life. Well, I think Jesus actually expects us to do that in real life. And because that's our natural reaction, because it is counterintuitive, I saw the rule as a way to begin countering that counterintuitive thought. I needed to not overthink those questions when God impresses on me to do something and just do it. And so that's the, the heart of the, um, uh, the 10 second rule. One of the foundational principles is this. When you're reasonably certain Jesus is asking you to do something, do it immediately within the next 10 seconds. Because time is not your friend. It gives those other voices a chance to speak to you and talk you out of what you know you ought to do. And like me, if I do that, if I wait too long, the other voice generally wins. So how do we know these impressions are actually from God? Well, that's the tricky part, <clears throat> at least for some people. I have never heard God speak to me audibly. Some people have, but God is never speaking to me audibly. So frankly, I wouldn't dare stamp, thus saith the Lord, on anything outside of the Bible. So when I say that I think God's telling me to do this, I wouldn't go to the stake for it. It just seems like something that Jesus would likely ask me to do. And and so when I say that he's speaking to me, it sounds like an impulse a member of the Trinity would give me. Sometimes I have a sense it's from the Father, kind of from the Old Testament. It reminds me of some Old Testament command. Sometimes it feels like the words of Jesus, and other times it just feels like the Holy Spirit is reminding me. I, I don't have a trinity meter that I can point at and find out where it comes from, but it just seems that makes sense to me. You know, it's kind of like this. If a, if a friend uh, ever came to me when I was young and said, I just talked to your mother, and she told me she wants you to go to so-and-so's house and help that person, I'd believe this person has told me that. Why would I believe that without hearing my mother's voice at all? Because it's the kind of thing my mother would do, and therefore it would be reasonable for me to think she'd ask me to do that through my friend. And, uh, and, and so that's 
these promptings from the Holy Spirit come in one of three categories. I'm kind of a trying to, and I want to be careful. Um, I've found God difficult to organize. <laughs> but that doesn't keep me from trying just to make it teachable. I think about these impressions from God in one of three categories. You know, one is a warning about a sin I'm about to commit. Claire, don't do this. Another is a reminder to do something that I ought to do that's commanded in the Bible. Be kind, be gracious, be compassionate. And others are just kind of special impressions commanded that are, that are not in the Bible at all. Go into, I've had impressions to get up from the TV and go into the kitchen and just tell my wife I love her. I should do that far more. And she wishes I would listen to the Spirit far more, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's those things that are not clearly are written in the Bible that cause us the most difficulty because that's kind of flying without a net in some ways. But can, so can I say for certainty that every impression I'm giving uh, is from God? No, I, actually not. Oh, I got a warning for you. Don't ever use the 10-second rule to decide who you're going to marry, um, and investments, what job you're going to take, uh, uh, adoption, those kinds of things. You need good godly counsel, maybe for weeks or months on those things. It's these pedestrian day-in and day-out impressions from God that, that really are at the heart of what I'm talking about you know, for the 10-second rule. And think about, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is you actually do something nice for someone, or you keep yourself from sinning. How can that not be the will of God? Even if, even if that impression doesn't come from him, there's, I can't imagine there's any downside. It may cost you some money. You might actually waste some money. And there are, you know, there are people that are, and, and I can be the same thing. Well, they're just going to waste it if I give them this money. Some homeless guy comes up to me or somebody asks me for money. I say, you mean like wasting, like I waste money, like going spending 12 bucks to go to the movies and 10 bucks for popcorn and lattes and expensive vacations? You mean that kind of waste? Or their kind of waste? You know, we tend to be more concerned about somebody else's waste than our own as if the money belongs to us. If you believe that, you need to go back to Luke again and talk about what, what belongs to so this isn't rocket science. It's just that most of us are not used to actually living by faith day in and day out. So how do we do that? How do we prepare ourselves to live by faith? Well, the first thing is to devour the Bible. There's a chapter in my book called The School of Jesus. And in it, I, I challenge everybody to read the book of Luke over the next month like I did. But don't read it like you've always read it. Just go, I agree, that's true, and I know Jesus said that, and that's a nice sentiment. No, 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 stop. And ask yourself, when Jesus says something, am I obedient to that command? Am I always obedient to that command, either positive or negative command? If not, why not? When I violated it last time, what should I do differently to prepare myself? Ask yourself that question. It literally might take you months to go through this month-long reading if you take the time to actually become a student of Jesus. So there's a, there's a drama that I loved <clears throat> for years and years and years. I even bought the DVDs called West Wing. And it's the story of the president and the West Wing and all the advisors around him. And one of my favorite characters is a guy named Sam Seaborn. Sam was the president's speechwriter. This guy had read every speech, I mean, everything that president had ever written He'd listened to every speech the president ever given. He sat around the cabinet meetings to listen how the, the president articulated his 
um, uh, his ideas. When the president asked him to write a speech, the president didn't have to give him five points. He so knew the mind of the president that he could write the president's speeches. That's the holy grail for each one of us, to so know the mind of Jesus, so know the mind of God, that we could finish his sentences, that we're reasonably certain Jesus would respond this way, that we're reasonably certain Jesus would act this way, and, and not worry about being right all the time. You know, I, I, I've had people say to me, uh, yeah, but you know, I, that doesn't always work because I tried that and things turned out bad. And I said, you know, we Christians have an interesting notion that if we act on something and it doesn't turn out, that must not have been the will of God. And if we do it and it turns out, that was the will of God. That might come as a shock to God. Uh, years ago, years ago, I uh, had a guy come in my office looking for money. Uh, he was going off to China, a young missionary. I think it was China. And, uh, and his wife was re- reluctant. We, we met a few times. His wife was reluctant to have him uh, to, to go, was actually fearful of it. But he felt the Lord was calling him to China. So he went, and six, eight months later, he ended up coming back. His wife had a mental breakdown or just had some very difficult time there. And he came in kind of sheepish, like, wow, I, did I misread the will of God? And I said, what makes you think so? Well, because I blew like 30000 bucks that I raised from people, and I had to come back with tail between my legs from China. I said, maybe the will of God was for you to listen to your wife more, and this was just an expensive lesson that you had to learn. Don't assume you misread God. You may have. We don't know that for a purpose, but let's not always assign whether God was speaking if things turn out the way we plan. So the second thing you can do to prepare for, so first, devour scripture so that you can finish Jesus' sentences on practical, everyday kinds of issues. Secondly, is pray to the Holy Spirit to give you radar to be more responsive to him. So this morning, I prayed in my quiet time. I don't do this every morning. I wish I was disciplined enough to do that. My wife is incredibly disciplined with some of her prayer time. I'm just, I'm a little sloppy at this. And, but when I'm lucid enough to listen to the Holy Spirit, I'm actually saying to God, please give me spiritual radar for the people you want me to, to help today, the people you want me to meet with, because I don't always know who they are. And if I do that, then I've got my ears perked up. I'm, I'm looking for things. Otherwise, my natural mode is, let's just get in and out of here before 18 people want to meet with me. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, I just need to prepare myself spiritually at the beginning of the day. But the third thing is, begin by being faithful in small things. You know, there's an interesting um, um, uh, passage in Luke 16. Jesus said that whoever can be trusted with little things can be trusted with big things. Some of us are under the illusion that if God ever asked me to do some big thing, I'd do it for sure. I'm that obedient, or I'm that spiritual. Maybe we're not that arrogant out loud, but that's worth actually thinking. Why would Jesus entrust some of us to some big thing if we're not faithful in the small things? So <clears throat> I don't exercise much, which is a joke around our family. I get to the gym a couple times a week if I'm lucky, and I take the summer off because I obviously don't need it. And... Um, <laughs> So I, I, I kid with my grandkids, you don't keep a panther like the body like this, you know, for, uh, by abusing it. Well, uh, um, 
But if I actually wanted to run the Boston Marathon, and that, there are people older than me. I'm 70 this year. Maybe I told you that. I forgot. Anyway, so that's part of early onset Alzheimer's. Um, if I wanted to run the Boston Marathon, I couldn't buy a book on running, lay on the couch, and read a bag of potato chips, and eat a bag of potato chips. I'd actually have to begin running. Now, the book might help me. It might give me some ideas. But I couldn't train for the Boston Marathon without actually training. I'd have to get out and run, you know, eighth of a mile or a quarter mile or half a mile, whatever it is, a few days later, a little bit longer, a few days later, a little bit longer, more. If I did that, if I was actually disciplined enough, I think I could actually um, uh, run in the um, Boston Marathon. The 10-second rule is a way to begin training yourself to be more and more obedient. It's not some magic pill. But if, if you recognize in what I said this morning that you've kind of just fallen into religious Christianity, just kind of grinding it out week after week, trying to do your devotionals, but there's just the love that you once had maybe doesn't feel that exciting anymore. This is a way to begin finding your way back. I'm going to read you a story. My mother passed away 20 years ago, actually at my age, 70, uh, and she had a heart attack, but my, uh, one of my uh, children had given her a book on how to write your life story, kind of a history of the family. And so she started recording her, her life story. And I learned all kinds of stories. I had never, either she'd never told us or that I just hadn't remembered at all. And, uh, and then she died of a heart attack. So she never got to finish it. But we found this cassette of like an hour and a half of stories that, you know, I put it in the car. You, you young people have no idea what a cassette is, but it's a little thing with a little tape in it that, you know, people can speak onto and music and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> in the olden days, yeah, back with eight tracks. So that really take my time. So I'm playing this, this cassette and I'm bawling my eyes out with these stories of my mother and just learning things I didn't think about her. So she told this story, which I thought was stunning. My mother passed along to our family in this cassette the story of her godly grandmother who, during the Depression, felt that God was calling her to care for neighbor women and uh, neighbor woman and her children on the next farm over in Hudsonville, actually, who were sick with tuberculosis. Then it was a deadly disease so that her husband could bring in the desperately needed harvest. My great-grandmother and her husband prayed about it and decided that if Jesus told us to love our neighbors, then she really had no choice but to go and care for them. So for months, she courageously devoted herself to them, living with them, and miraculously, the neighbor woman and her family fully recovered. However, when my great-grandmother uh, returned to her own family, she gave it to two of her children, and all three of them died. I've often wondered how many hundreds or thousands of small small selfless Christ-like decisions one has to make to get to the point where we're willing to lay down our life for another as my great-grandmother did. That's really what the rule is all about. 
It's the recalibration of our character, one obedience click at a time, slowly conforming ourselves to the image of Christ as we trust that he has a reason beyond our understanding. That is true faith. So the subtitle of my book is Following Jesus Made Simple. It's actually a lie, because it is not simple. (laughs) Following Jesus has never been simple for me, but beginning that journey is fairly simple. You know, there's an old Chinese proverb, the journey of of, of, of a thousand miles begins with the first step. Just do the next thing you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do, and then do it again and again and again. And if you're faithful at that, I'm confident you will be an effective, fruitful follower of Jesus. And you will love God more than you ever imagined you possibly could. So, yeah, that's it. If we have some questions, I'd be happy to take some. Have about 10 minutes. As you know, we don't normally do things predictably here at Trinity Mission Church. It's almost always different in some ways. And uh, Claire has had this wonderful suggestion that after uh, a sermon like this that we might have some questions about how do we live this out in our everyday lives. So if there's a few questions out here, I would love to take the microphone to you and to ask that question. Um, I'll go ahead and just get started. So as you're forming a question in your head, here's one I'll throw at Claire now. Um, Claire, I, I, knowing you, I know this is true, but can you give us some uh, simple and clear uh, ways to help bring Scripture into the, just the doing of God's mission? We're a missionary church. We want to be a part of God's healing of brokenness in this world. The 10-second rule is a great gift for us to do this, not just in pedestrian ways, but in every life ways. Can you help us to go from reading a text like John or Luke, or whatever, and just living it that day? Well, I can't, but the Holy Spirit can. And I think part of it is that, that I think the Holy Spirit, as we both memorize Scripture and read Scripture, the Holy Spirit is like a, a Google search, a spiritual Google search, that I will find that, that I will recall either a teaching in Scripture, I can't maybe quote chapter and verse, but I have a rough idea where it is, I have a, you know, that the Holy Spirit calls to mind this body of information that is lying dormant in my, in my heart and in my mind. And so uh, there, there is no substitution uh, for, under, for knowing Scripture and for having godly men and women around you who will help you to be obedient, who will be cheering you on. If you don't have a spiritual friend who can cheer you on to be faithful in your quiet time with God, memorization and those kinds of things don't look at those as an end of themselves I mean, there are people I know that have been in Bible study for 50 years now bless their heart I keep staying in Bible study but if we had kids who went to college for 50 years we go whoa we're not paying any more tuition and go out and get a J-O-B Jesus would prefer that we be half as smart and twice as obedient that's my theory and so while we want to keep studying scripture God actually wants us to put into practice. And so it's that boldness. And if you have a Christian friend to come alongside of you and, and you can, you're doing this together. When I, we start, first started doing the rule before I even thought of it as a book or anything else, I had five guys, six of us, who agreed to kind of live by the rule for the next 30 days. And we'd come back and we would share ideas. You know, here's what happened to us. Some guys said, well, you know, I kind of wimped out on this. What would I do differently? And so that was really helpful for me 
trying to just obey the rule as a one person. You were, you were never meant to do this alone. You have community, not just the Crossroads community, but other Christians in your life. Gather them around and just say, look, it, I want you to hold me accountable. Could we together, maybe two, let's, let's live by the 10-second rule for the next 30 days. I call it a 10, a 10 for 30. Uh, and so live by the 10 for 30 rule for the next 30 days and see what God does. But that'll be a great asset for you as you grow. Some other questions. All right. Thank you, Ken. So, Claire, you made a comment in your um, sermon talk about, it was kind of an offhand comment, that God gave you the economic freedom to be able to study the Bible. And so I guess I wonder or have a suspicion that perhaps sometimes people in, that are in poverty in situations like that, um, it may be difficult to merely say, believe the gospel, repent, and, and be saved. And as Ken alluded to, we want to be a congregation and a church that is about justice and wants to, uh, you know, share the gospel with those, but also recognize that need. So could you just speak to maybe some ways that we could begin to address economic um, injustice or issues? Well, I'm, uh, let's see if I'm, I'll answer your question, but like most times, I, I, um, we might need a follow-up because I didn't get it correctly. So <clears throat> I will say this. I do have the economic freedom to do things that other people can't do. I am also confident in the economy of God that there is somebody who's a lift truck operator at General Motors who has an IQ of 80, who makes minimum wage, who led two kids to Christ in a backyard Bible club, who will be my boss in heaven someday. In the economy of God, we are only, we are only required based on what God gives us, spiritually, materially, and everything else. And so uh, uh, I don't expect everyone to be like me, and they shouldn't. There are people who are deeply spiritual. At one time, I was asked to go to India and do a teaching, 10-second rule. And I said, are you kidding? I wouldn't. I, these people are paying a sacrifice. I'll never, for me to go and tell them how to live more obedient lives, are you kidding me? No, that would be doing injustice to them. And so, uh, so from my standpoint, I, I, I have always got to be mindful of that. But the second part is, part of following Jesus means you've got to be concerned about economic justice. About, so a ministry that I'm involved in the last couple of years was helping, helping train pastors to be more thoughtful and compassionate toward LGBT people from a conservative theological position. And people go, well, this is not a social justice issue. I say, actually, it is. The church Christians have been unkind to LGBT people for a long time. We don't have to abandon what the Bible has taught about, uh, about uh, same-sex sex and same-sex marriage to still be kind and thoughtful and compassionate and understand of LGBT people. So I think Christians need to be at the forefront of all of these things. And whether you can do that part-time, whether you can do it full-time, it depends on what God, how God has blessed you to be able to do that. But I do have people who own businesses or are successful and maybe get to be 60 years old in the economy and say, I want to do what you do. I feel you know, that maybe I should just sell my business or give my job. I said, well, if you're being effective where you are, stay where you are. It's not like if you grow up and get really spiritual, you do what I do. Trust me, there's days I'm not very spiritual at all. You know, I just have the illusion of spirituality. 
because I'm a control freak. It just looks more spiritual, you know, uh, what I do now. So uh, um, I, I say God has put you where you are, and unless God calls you clearly someplace else, then just be that salt and light there. Other question? So I'm just curious, um, being married myself, how have you seen, and maybe your wife would <laughs> respond to this too, but how have you seen the interplay between what you feel like God is calling you, what your wife feels like God is calling her to do, and have those ever, not butt heads in the negative sense, but I know my own wife and I have had these times where I'm saying, you know, maybe we, we don't do this. She's like, no, I'm feeling, I feel God is calling us to, to answer this, to answer it fully, and, and if anything, it's like that, that, that marital, spiritual calling each other out and how you wrestle with that because I think sometimes it's, it's easy for me to justify not doing things on Christ's behalf because I'll say, oh, it's, you know, it's for our marriage or it's for this, but like figuring out when those tough conversations come about, how you wrestle with that. I'm just curious if you had any examples in your life because I know I've had in mine. Oh, no, not in 50 years. We've always been on the same page on every issue. <laughs> oh, I'm about to send into emotional quicksand right now, you know. No, the truth of the matter is there are times where we both have different, we have, we're sensing, you know, God different. But those are generally on the major pieces. You know, uh, uh, Susan has given me incredible freedom on, on kind of the day-to-day -day kinds of things to help people, to be generous and kind. And same thing with her. She's, uh, she's had times where, um, I don't want to reveal too much about her life, but there's been times where she literally will get a call from somebody or, and, and she'll say, I just need to go out with this person and to spend some time with them. And I'll go, well, yeah, but we had a day planned to get, I need to do this. Okay. So I've got a, a freedom to do it. When it comes to some of the larger things, kind of the direction of our, of our family, decisions we have to make. We need to pray about that a lot. And, you know, we've been married 50 years, and about every six or eight years we go in for what we call a tune-up, a little counseling. And, uh, and most guys don't want to go into counseling. They go, I'm not going to spill my guts to some stranger. Well, you can spill it to a lawyer or a judge, or, or you can actually... <laughs> so find a godly counselor who can, who can bring some objectivity to it, because there are times we, do, we don't agree. You know, I, that's the truth of it. That's the nature of, of, of being sinful people in a relationship that lasts this long. So I think you'd have to talk to my wife. She's the, the blonde sitting over, you know, it looks like my daughter. Uh, uh, and you could talk to her afterwards. But, yeah, uh, uh, some of these larger issues are difficult. I think Susan had a difficult time understanding why I would sell the business when I did uh, because it didn't make much sense to her at that point. And it didn't make a lot of sense to me either, you know. But then later on, she came to embrace it. And other times, she made the decision to bring three women, I mean, three children home from Albania, like on a weekend, <laughs> for medical care, you know. She said, I'm in Amsterdam, and I've got three kids. We need an oxygen tank and a doctor at the airport. What were you thinking, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, we... You just have to navigate that. And when you find that you have a difficult time, find the most spiritual person you know or another couple and ask them to come alongside of you and navigate that or get a, some good godly counsel from a pastor or from a professional therapist and you won't regret that. One more question. Oh. Well, now you're going to hear the first opinion. Oh, my word. <laughs> um, 
No, I just really feel a, a prompting of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm a really private person, and so this is totally out of my box. But um, one of the things that God continues to teach me, and sometimes I'm a really slow learner, but that is to submit um, to the authority that God has given my husband. And in that submitting process, um, there's a joy that doesn't come instantly because it's a surrendering of my will, but God put him in authority over me, and when I submit to his authority, that's what God desires of me, and um, then Claire will be given the grace to be able to handle those decisions in a way that if I took the reins and wanted to do that, it, it wouldn't be what God wants. And so, again, it's, it's a lesson that I'm still learning, but I remember years and years ago um, that I thought it was a joke to submit um, to my husband. I was like, why in the world would I do that? I'm a, you know, a person with rights and opinions, and, um, and yet if you read scripture um, and follow it, there's a joy in that submission. So just wanted to share that. Thank you. Just one more last question. Uh, you mentioned early in the sermon that success was your God. And I'm just kind of wondering, how long did that take for that to die? And how did you handle when those two masters, so to say, like butted heads? Well, sin for me is like, and particularly pride, is like the whack-a-mole at Chuck E. Cheesy's. You know, yeah, I, uh, um, uh, it never, it never completely dies because all of us want to be, want to be admired by somebody, for a variety of reasons, and so there are times I actually do, in quotes, good things for God, because they make people admire me more. And that's a, you know, when you write a book, oh boy, you're an author. Are you kidding? I'm not an author. I wrote a book. Authors are people who actually write books for a living, and you know, I hope God never asked me to write another book again. So, uh, so it, it, didn't, it, it didn't die because self-interest just doesn't die that quickly. I know first, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I believe that to be a theological reality, but the truth of my life is the, the old man keeps knocking on the back door and wanting me to come out and play. And there's times that I listen to that. And so that's just a struggle I've got forever. So if you think you're ever going to get over sin, it will happen on the day that you die. But because of the Holy Spirit, we actually have power to say no to sin. So I can't ever say God made me do this. No, God gave me the power to say no. So I have to own all of it myself, even if I don't recognize it. So that's just a lifelong battle. Glitter Graf, thank you. Thank you. Could you please close us in a prayer? I will.
Would you stand up, please? <clears throat> I like to pray standing, and I, I often pray with my hands raised. And I did a study on this a number of years ago. It's interesting that this is the universal sign of surrender. I don't care if you're an aborigine or, you know, a German. When you go like this, I surrender. Whether you mean that or not, I try to do that. I also symbolically just kind of keep my hands open to receive from God wherever he wants to give me. Do I need to have this antenna up for that to happen? No, I don't. But in Romans where it says, worship with your, with, with, with your whole body, I think that's part of it. So let me pray for you and with you. Holy Spirit, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the joy of our salvation, Jesus. I pray that if there's somebody here today who's still kicking tires spiritually, who still has not come to you, who is scared to death and is counting the cost, I pray that they would settle that issue today, that they would pledge their highest and forever eternal allegiance to you, that they would do business with you, that the Holy Spirit would come in and, and, uh, and take over their life. And for Lord, for those of us here who have just been going through the motions, showing up at church, but just feel lukewarm. I pray that you quicken our spirits. Lord, just fan into flame this, this pilot light within us that you planted years and years ago and help us to be fully devoted followers of yours. So thank you for this church, for the community of believers. And I pray that as we go out of here, that you, Holy Spirit, the hound of heaven, would keep reminding us of anything that we need to remember to be more fully devoted followers and don't let us go. Give us no rest until we find our rest in you. We thank you. We love you. We praise your holy name. Amen. I promise I wrote this before the service. <laughs> um, as we reflect and respond to the word preached today, uh, we